Good singing. Please be seated. We turn in God's Word again to the Gospel according to John. Coming now to chapter 19, verse 16. We've gone very slowly through the trial that Jesus endured in the presence of Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate, I think unwittingly, asks some very important and profound questions. What is truth? Are you a king? What have you against this man? We come now, though, to verse 16, where the sentence is given, and we'll be considering down to verse 37 the results of this outcome. John 19:16 Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away, and he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from from the top in one piece. So they said among themselves, therefore, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, that he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. 
Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we too would look upon this pierced son, the one who was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We long on this day for the crucified Christ to be risen again, surely in our hearts and in our estimation, that we would see the one who in love has given all things, that we might receive all things, and that we who have been forgiven much might likewise love much. We pray it in his name. Amen. Many, if not all of you, have seen driving around the south and other parts of the country uh, as on our nation's roads and highways, tucked away in a farmer's field or strategically placed on a hilltop pasture, two large white crosses with a golden yellow cross standing higher in the middle. Um, I'm sure you've seen dozens of these on displays if you've traveled down I-77 or I-81 or even around our area. But do you know how they got there? They're the work of a man named Bernard Coffendaffer. Born in West Virginia in 1935, Mr. Coffendaffer founded a coal washing business in the mountains of West Virginia, and thanks to much hard work on his part, he became relatively well-off, modestly wealthy. And that hard work, though it prospered him, it did take a toll on his health. And after two heart bypass operations, Coffendaffer decided that he would slow down a bit. He liquidated his business in 1982, and he had just begun his retirement when he had, in his words anyway, a vision, quote, a genuine, marvelous, glorious vision. The Holy Spirit instructed, blessed, and dealt with me and told me how to go about installing the crosses. Well, he was not disobedient to the vision. Off he went, and eventually it became an organization called Crosses Across America. And for the last nine years of his life, he spent most of his modest fortune of some $3 million planting those three familiar crosses across 29 states and even the District of Columbia. And if you travel to Zambia or the Philippines, you can find some there as well. Site owners would donate the land and Coffendaffer would pay for the crosses to be installed and erected. And in this way, some 1,864 trios of crosses have been set up around the world or at least before his death in 1993. Actually, I guess it's still going on. There's still a project if you want some crosses in your backyard. When he started the cross project, he said, they're up for only one reason. This is why he did it. To remind people that Jesus was crucified on a cross at Calvary for our sins, and that he is soon coming again. And maybe the crosses will make one person Stop 
and think. Well, more than one person has stopped to think. In fact, uh, now thousands of people have not only noticed his crosses, uh, Coffin Daffer became the subject of a PBS documentary uh, on his life called Point Man for God, and later an, an award-winning series, Different Drummer, and he was in, even featured on CBS Sunday Morning. So, thanks to Mr. Coffin Daffer's work, a lot of people have, over the years, stopped and thought about Christ's cross. Well, today we are going to stop and think about the same thing. And it's customary for preachers to go into the bloody details of the crucifixion, but you notice how remarkably restrained John and all the other writers are. John simply says, they crucified him. And as clearly as painful and harrowing as it was, there is an astonishing restraint. On the other hand, there could be no doubt that we have reached the very center of biblical revelation. Everything before this looked ahead to this moment. Everything afterward looks back. Christ's life was a kind of pilgrimage to the cross. We find at this place that the wages of sin is death. But it is here that we also find the love of God and his determination to save and even go to a terrible length to accomplish accomplish that salvation. So today I'd like to consider with you God's purpose, Christ's victory, and our reassurance. God's purpose, Christ's victory, and our reassurance. First, God's purpose. Why did Jesus of Nazareth die? Who is responsible for his death? Well, the answer is obvious to any reader of the Bible or a student of history, you might say. The Jewish authorities thought that Jesus' teaching was dangerous, subversive, and blasphemous. Here was a man who was claiming not merely to be just the Messiah, but also God incarnate. Jesus was clearly a revolutionary thinker and preacher, a man who did countless undeniable miracles, who went about doing good, but these leaders were greatly angered by his frequent rebukes and his attack against the traditions of the elders. He upset the establishment. He socialized with disreputable people, prostitutes, tax collectors, notorious sinners. He healed people on the Sabbath. He denounced the Jewish spiritual leaders as utter hypocrites. He called them blind leaders of the blind, comparing them to whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but dead on the inside. And he told the people that he was, and they told the people that he was doing these miracles by the power of the devil. They tried time and time again to catch him in something that he might say, but at last they arrested him and handed him over to the Roman governor to be executed on the charge of high treason against Caesar. He claims to be a king, and we have no king but Caesar. Well, he was tried and found innocent, but the Jewish authorities threatened the governor who could not afford another complaint against him, and so cowardly in a self-serving way, He delivered over an innocent man to be crucified, and so he was. That is why Jesus of Nazareth died. And it's not too hard to us to understand what actually happened on that day. People often have the same kind of reaction, I suppose, to Jesus today. 
People resent his challenging words, his demand for homage, his expectation of our obedience, his rude intrusion into our lives. Can't this man mind his own business? So people today, likewise, perceive Jesus as a threat to the established order who undermines authority and who diminishes our self-respect. And we can recognize some of this same attitude in ourselves. We can understand why they crucified the Lord of glory, for we are those very sinners that he came into the world to save. And so it's not hard to understand that the cross, before it was done for us, was actually something done by us. That is to say, it was for our sins that he made his pilgrimage there. That old spiritual asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And every Christian must say, yes, a simple and straightforward admission that mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. And so we, as it were, also called for his death. And so why did Christ die? Well, Judas delivered him up for money, the Jews for envy, Pilate for fear, the crowds for selfish reasons. He had come into the world to save sinners. And so, as Jesus explained, light came into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, so they put the light out. And that is why Jesus died. As we've certainly read over the last several weeks, a travesty of justice. But it would be a profound mistake to think that all those true historical forces were the determining factor. For here at the cross, John tells us in our passage that there was another, far more important reason. There was another hand governing and overriding all those events and human forces. For all that took place that day was done to fulfill God's eternal purpose, even in the smallest details. And John makes a point of that. Did you notice how four times in these few verses I read to you, he explains how something happened that the Scripture might be fulfilled. As first they cast lots for his clothing, verse 24, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Well, they didn't know it, of course, but God knew it. And again, verse 28, about the wine vinegar he was given, we read that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And then once more in verse 36, John makes a point of saying that the soldier didn't break Christ's bones, which was interesting because those soldiers were under orders to go and to break the legs of the crucified men. And, you know, even when they saw he was dead, you would have expected them to break the legs because that's what they were told to do and they wouldn't want to get in trouble. But they didn't obey that order that Jesus might have this prophecy fulfilled. A soldier thrust his spear into his side to make sure he was dead. So not one of his bones were broken, but on a whim, he fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, they shall look on him whom they pierced. John's point in these four passages, back to back, and others, by the way, implied in the language of his passage, 
means that it was no helpless victim of cruel circumstances who died at Calvary. It was just what we read earlier from the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. Or it's what we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, very strikingly. Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. A very strong statement of God's superintendence and governance of those sinful actions of sinful men so that they could not but fulfill that prophecy, chosen willingly and freely, even, as I say, on a whim, and yet sovereignly guided to this end. Christ not only died because of man's sin, but through God's sovereignty. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. The just died for the unjust to bring us to God, and so Christ's death is much more frequently described as God giving his son's life than in man taking it. Even, of course, the best-known verse of the Bible, I think. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. There it, there it is, that in the crucifixion there is another hand at work, another purpose that had long been planned, not of man's hatred, but of God's love. So Octavius Winslow sums it up nicely this way. Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And that is, from our passage, point one, God's purpose, clearly seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Do you see? Second, in the passage, we have Christ's victory. Christ's victory. And we we sang his words earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we sang the cry, the Savior's cry of dereliction. But here at the end, we hear what is a word of triumph. It is finished. We turn now from the words of a victim to the words of a victor. The debt was paid. The atonement was accomplished. The propitiation was made. The cup of wrath was drained to the bottom. The curse of the law found its rest upon him so that the thunder of Sinai is now silenced. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And so the reformer of Geneva wrote, In the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines never more brightly than on the cross. It's very interesting that the word crucified isn't used in the Gospel of John until we get to this point. Um, Every other time Jesus describes what's going to happen. He calls it being lifted up or exalted. Same word. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That he would be, Isaiah said, exalted and be very high. Did he know what he was saying? And now as he faces the cross, Jesus announces, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. In the cross, we find Christ's victory, Christ's exaltation, Christ's glorification. For there we behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For here it is, you see, that justice and holiness, mercy and love, wisdom and wonder have met together. The sinfulness of sin is taken away by the Lamb of God who can only atone, who can, alone can atone for the sins of the world. The Son of Man, He had come to seek and to save that which is lost. He had come into this world to save sinners. He was manifested to take away our sins. And all this is now accomplished on the cross. It's just one word in the original. It is finished to telestai. But in that word is wrapped up the whole gospel. In that word is contained the ground of the believer's assurance. In that word is discovered the sum of all joy and the very spirit of all divine consolation, wrote Arthur Pink. You know, in the last century, archaeologists have found thousands of little papyrus scraps with Greek writing on them. Bills and receipts, yes, they, get, they had bills also. And many of them have written on the top the one word that we find here, to Tetelestai, paid in full. The obligation has been discharged. The debt has been satisfied. To Tetelestai, it is finished. It is finished. Do you believe it? Are you trying to add something of your own to the finished work of Christ to earn God's grace? I tell you, God is satisfied with the finished work of Christ. Shouldn't you be? Every sin you have been committed, have committed, has been washed away in that blood. By that one offering, it's written, he has perfected forever, perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christ accomplished not only salvation there, but also revelation, a word as well as a work to preach to us a word that we need to hear today. It is finished, finished, paid in full. Here is Christ's victory for us. And this gives us, thirdly, our reassurance, our reassurance. If I can be a little philosophical for a moment, there are several things in human life and experience that seem to point us to God, that seem to point beyond our daily lives 
to God himself and to the meaning of life. One writer gives this list. Justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. These are transcendent things that seem to be more than just our life as creatures. Things that point us to God himself. Things that matter. Sometimes people try to ignore one or more of these things and it comes back to bite you, right? Think of socialist republics. Think of, think of uh, justice, truth, and uh, beauty uh, when they are wrecked and ruined. These things are built into our humanness. You don't have to teach people about justice, that justice matters, right? Little children in the playground say, that's not fair. You don't have to teach them moral philosophy. They know. When it comes to spirituality, for the last couple hundred years, people have been trying to do without it in this way or that, and things keep on creeping in, right? You can't get rid of these ideals, of these deep longings and desires, for God himself has given them to us as creatures made in his image, longings for love and justice, beauty and freedom, and so on. Now, what I want to point out to you is that when we come here to John chapter 19, to the the climax and the fulfillment of Christ's mission, what do we find? We find that every last one of these ideals and longings are trampled in the dust. These things that we thought were to point us to God and do, but these are the very things that have collapsed and failed. Justice? It's the greatest injustice in the history of the world. You know, the Romans prided themselves on law and justice, but Pilate's judgment of innocence was overruled by his own political interests And threats, if you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So he hands him over. Love? Well, I tell you, the bitter hatred won that day. Even among his disciples in the upper room, Jesus washed their feet and called them his friends and declared his love. Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. They have all abandoned him to his fate. Now, of course, he's always been a man despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His enemies were many. His friends were few, and those few faithless. But now at the cross, love, like justice, has failed. Spirituality? (laughs) Witness the leaders of the holy people of God scrupulous about not entering Pilate's residence lest they become defiled and shouldn't eat the feast. They want him to come out so that they can have an innocent man murdered. Right? Here is spirituality at its very worst. Beauty? How about a crown of thorns in its place? Freedom? How about the Son of God being nailed and fastened to a cross while a murderer is released. Truth? What is truth? Pilate says. Power? Pilate boasts that he has the power to have Jesus released or crucified. 
And Jesus won't let that pass. He reminds them he would have no power at all unless it had been given to him. And that the world's rulers are called to account for their sins. But here are all the great, noble, high human aspirations and longings and ideals which are etched so deep into our heart, which should point us up to God, our Maker. And what do we find at the climax of the story? One by one, they are all trampled, twisted, distorted, snuffed out. Isn't that interesting? That Jesus comes to the place, as one writes, not to where the signposts appear to be pointing, but that Jesus comes to the place where they have collapsed. That the God who we might have hoped would meet us Injustice, love, freedom, and truth has instead come to meet us in the place where they are denied. Our place. That is to say, our broken world. God comes to meet us not at the top of some ladder of human constructs, but at the bottom of the human heap. The place of broken hopes, broken dreams. And there, in real human history, says one, we find a God doing what no other God has ever dreamed of doing. Of coming to meet us in the place of our most utter failure. And that's the point of a poem by the First World War era poet, Edward Stiletto, called... Jesus of the scars. He contrasts Jesus with those great gods of Rome, and he writes, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus has come down, down, all the way down to us. At humanity's lowest point, where all human aspiration has failed, that there he might save us and carry us home. For there is no place too low, there is none without hope. And this is our reassurance. And it says it in so many ways in the Bible. When we were still Without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's the picture. Can't you see it at the cross supremely? Again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For there at the cross, we find the darkest hour of the human condition. And it's at that point that Jesus has come to put away our sin. In conclusion, there's an Augustinian monastery that was built in the 16th century near Madrid, Spain, called El Escorial, a magnificent building where some kings of Spain have been buried. Um, The architect who built it made an arch that was so flat it frightened the king. He, he ordered the architect to add a column 
to support the middle of the arch. The architect assured the king that it was not necessary, but the king insisted, so the column was built. Years later, the king died, and the architect revealed that he built that column one quarter of an inch short of the arch, which had not sagged in the slightest. And tour guides today will pass a paper or something over the top of the column to show that in 400 years, the arch hasn't budged. That arch is like our salvation in at least three ways. First, as we've seen, there is a master designer behind it. It didn't just happen. It was carefully planned and carried out by God. Second, it is fully and totally sufficient. Just as the arch didn't need the help of a column to stand, so our salvation is finished, is completed in Christ, perfect and sufficient. There's nothing that we can do to supplement or to add to it. But third, there is a practical use for it. The arch wasn't just for looks. It was to support the rest of the building. And so if we look at Christ's salvation, we will be assured and adequately supported for the rest of our lives as we walk with him. And there we find one who has known us at our worst and who has met us there to carry us back to God. You can find him there today if you have not met him at his cross. If you have met him, he is still known rightly in that place. I conclude with a quote that I also put in your bulletin that you can meditate upon later from P.T. Forsyth, English Congregationalist. It says, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. Let us pray together. Oh God, our Father, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Help us to see. Help us to cling to the cross And that in seeing, we might believe anew that Jesus is the Christ. That in clinging, we should find that the one who has died for our sins has indeed finished the work. As the Lamb of God, he has taken away our sin. And in him, we find life eternal. We pray that we too, when we are overwhelmed, might be reminded that you are in control. That you would give us courage and boldness through all the other things that we must face in this life, that you would take away by such confidence our bitterness and complaining and show us to be satisfied in your great power and wisdom. We have encouragement and boldness, confidence in prayer, for you are able to accomplish now all your holy purpose in us. We are yours, O Lord. You have bought us. We return again to you and we pray. May Christ be glorified.